something where you, it's a dynamic maneuver. You can't just, you know, you don't just do it one way one time and then that works in all situations. You got to really, really be cognizant of you know, conditions because, you know, it's such a light helicopter. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick out some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Hey folks, how have you been traveling? I hope you had a, a good week. Here in Brisbane in Queensland, we're just starting to feel the, the first effects of winter. So temperatures here are getting down to 14 degrees centigrade, which for Queenslanders means that we are, are running for our dunas, Ugg boots, beanies, and, and leather jackets. And it's time to start fitting the doors back onto the machines. Thankfully though, the sun is still out. So if you can find a, a spot out of the wind, you can still soak up some rays. I'm halfway through an interesting book at the moment. It's called Train Like You Fly by Alan McMahon. It's subtitled A Flight Instructor's Guide to Scenario-Based Training. If you're involved in any aspect of flight training, it's got some interesting takeaways in it. The examples are all fixed wing based, but you know it's easy enough to transfer that across to the helicopter world. And again, I'm only halfway through, but to boil down some of the material, here's some of the bits and pieces I've pulled out of it so far. One of the big differences in the approach is that in general, as instructors and schools, our syllabuses and our sorties are very focused around teaching the hands and feet skill for that lesson. Things like airmanship, risk management, decision-making, we fit these in around the training process and how we model, how we fly and act uh, for our students. These are the, the soft skills that get passed on that turn someone from a, being a, you know, a pilot into an aviator. And if you've listened to a few of the episodes uh, from this podcast with really experienced folks, it's something that they mentioned too, this idea that is much more than just being able to fly the helicopter, but it's the bigger picture of being able to bring all the different aspects of flying knowledge together to be a, a safe pilot. And this book just gives some approaches and tools that can help this process along in a, a flying school setting. You know, so using scenarios in the flights is obviously one of the methods. And another idea I really like is having an Excel file or some other form of database with a series of what they call judgment scenarios. So these are just a bunch of scenarios with several possible outcomes that an instructor could choose one from uh, for each lesson briefing. And they're just discussion exercises with no particular right or wrong answer, depending on possible combinations of weather, aircraft, and pilot experience. The goal is just to get the student familiar with thinking through aviation decisions and the possible consequences. And in doing so, you know, actually exercising, pulling together all those aspects of met, air law, or ops and planning to come up with what they would do in that particular situation. So I've still got a bit more there to read and to see you know, what things I can sort of pull out of that to improve how I go about doing things. All right, let's get to today's guest. We're heading back to the, the west coast of the United States to Oregon. Jerry Trimble is someone that has been around the industry for quite a while and done a, a bunch of interesting things along the way. He currently operates Jerry Trimble helicopters with several helicopter training locations around the US. In this episode, we talk about how Jerry moved from being a fixed-wing CFI to an AMP mechanic to rotary wing. The early days of Robinson helicopters and working with Frank Robinson, founding, growing, and then selling Hillsborough Aviation, and we cover some tips on conducting autorotations. The audio quality on the line is a little bit rough to start with, but it does get better into the interview, so stick it out for the first bit, and it'll be well worth your time. We kick off with me asking about Jerry's dad, Robert E. Trimble, who was also a very accomplished helicopter pilot. Jerry, your dad was a, a bit of a helicopter legend, I gather, from, from doing some background research there. Can you tell uh, folks just a, yeah, a little bit about your dad and then I guess that will lead into how you got involved in, in flying and helicopters too? Well, he got all trained up during World War II to fly airplanes. And then, believe it's in the 40s, he, um, the war ended, and he was just finished training. And uh, so then they, he got uh, 
discharge from the, the Army. It was the Army Air Corps, U.S. Army Air Corps, flying AT-6s and you know all that, and Stearmans and um, you know, all the training they take these guys through. And then he started just uh, flying in California, doing you know odd variety of work, and got uh, into the helicopter flying. I think he was flying early Bell 47s. And then he um, somehow I think just got because you know, no one else would go. He ended up in New Guinea flying you know, seismic or you know dynamite or whatever into the, the jungles and uh, spent nine months doing that. So he got a lot of quick on-the-job training with a helicopter, and then they, he ended up getting into the Grand Canyon, and they were flying into places where, you know, nobody basically ever been before, and it was before the turbines. So they were having a really, you know, my understanding is they'd have to run these quite a ways over red line to be able to get in and out of places. So he got ex- expertise flying at altitude and uh, started flying in the mountains and doing forest service work. And then he, he ended up fighting fires up in Northern California, um, up in the Siskiyou Mountains and the Trinity Mountains. So that's kind of where he made the name for himself is just, you know, new. New, the helicopter was new, and he was kind of one of the first guys that did a lot of the high altitude flying. You know, and I think he's president of ATI and got involved with that and had his own company. And they had an award after he was flying in '61 uh, and had a flying an Alouette. They moved in. I think they were first operator to import Alouettes and. Uh, uh, he had a tailor failure in the mountains in 61, and that killed him. So after that, like HCI had a, an award every year. They don't. They discontinued it. I don't know what happened to that, but uh, for probably about 30 years, they had a uh, award for you know anybody that excelled in mountain flying, and the Robert E. Trimble Memorial Award. And what I'll what I'll do, Jerry, and folks listening too, is I'll is a I found a really good PDF write up on the Helicopter Foundation uh, website about your dad and about the award. So I'll, I'll link that in the uh, the blog post that goes with this episode. And um, all right, because yeah, right. it's, it's it's quite a, a good read. Like you know, he, he did he did a lot of things. He was a uh, yeah. yeah, a real pioneer. So so uh, how anyway, old... that got me obviously interested in, in aviation. How old were you when uh, your dad died? Sure. I was five when he was killed, and uh, it's fun. What I did is they had a picture of me in one of his Bell 47s when I'm, you know, like six months old with my mom holding me, and I, I got it at work. And everybody asked, so when you start flying, so I drag him in the office and show him there. That's when I started, you know. So, so uh, was there ever a time, like since then, was there ever a time you went around aircraft or helicopters? Well. You know, after, you know, he passed away, then it was, you know, I went through school and I was going to get in the Army and uh, flying helicopters. That was right after Vietnam was winding down. And then my eyes weren't good enough. So, um, plus they didn't need pilots. That was in 73, 74. And uh, Vietnam was, was coming to the end and we had a lot of pilots. So, I ended up going the airplane route. Because I couldn't afford helicopters, so I got all my airplane ratings and started teaching. So that's kind of how I got into the aviation, is right out of high school. But got exposed at that early age, and then, you know, once you get the bug, it, you know, it never goes away. Very much so. And look, again, you've done almost everything. If you look at all the different areas, so you know, you've done EMS, you've done logging, you've done fire, done instructing, and you're you're also a mechanic though. So did you get your aircraft or did you get your helicopter mechanics tickets before you did your helicopter pilot training? Yeah, well, what was interesting was I was working as a flight instructor, and then I was working for this crop duster that was flew sprayed in Bell Forty Sevens. I was his uh, loader. And worked in uh, you know mixed chemicals and drove a mixed truck and and uh, so 
he would, uh, you know, I'd get a little bit of time with him, but, uh, you know, I worked, got a lot of exposure to the helicopter side of it. But my, a friend of my dad's had a helicopter operation in Indonesia. Uh, they were teaching the, uh, military, uh, not the military, but the oil company folks had to fly Bell 47s and, he called my mom and, and I ended up going over there after, this was, yeah, after my flight training, I think I had about 700 hours of airplane time and, uh, went over to Jakarta and, uh, got eight, about 88, 80 hours of Bell 47 time. They couldn't get me my commercial, but I got that experience and came back and got my commercial add on with, with Henderson Aviation, which is who I was working for. Uh, mixing. But I remember it was after I got my commercial helicopter, I remember walking away from that Bell 47 thinking, you know, I'm never going to fly another helicopter, you know, for professionally or can't afford it. I paid $250 an hour back in, I think that was 76, 1976, to, you know, fly that Bell 47 G4A. So, you know, it was just kind of, you know, I got a little taste of the helicopter world, but I, I never thought I'd do anything with it. I had my commercial add-on, but it was uh, kind of a dead end, I thought, because they had all these Vietnam uh, guys with 1,300-hour superb, and nobody hired an 88-hour helicopter pilot. So I couldn't afford any more time. The Robinson wasn't out. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll be a crop duster or a five-foot plane from the San Juan, so... I should probably get my A and T, so I went down to LA and got my A and T at Northrop University and uh instructed part time to you know, put groceries on the table. And uh while I was doing that I met John Holland, he was an old Navy pilot. He wanted to get his his uh uh commercial civilian commercial or CFI or you know, I can't remember right now, but he grew up on Woodby Island, and one day I was working on my Kitabi at Hawthorne Airport. He comes by and says, hey, we're going down to, you know, uh, Torrance. There's my neighbor, Frank Robinson, built a helicopter. I want to go down and see him and look at the helicopter. So that's kind of how I, I got my A&P and, and uh, met Frank all in the, you know, one sentence there. <laughs> and there's a pretty good story about your first day on the job at, uh, and I guess we're jumping ahead, but you then started obviously working with uh, uh, four Robinson helicopters. Uh, but yeah, there's a good story about your first day on, on the job there, if you were, if you can tell yeah, that. Yeah, it was, uh, well, I, you know, I met Frank and, you know, and there was like 20 people working there. They're on Crenshaw Boulevard there and in this big, big warehouse. It wasn't on the airport like it is now. And, uh, you know, met John Hall and I went down there and met Frank and, and, uh, he, he uh, he's a mechanic. The mechanic just quit and the, the ink was still wet on my A&T. So I'm like, yeah, I'll, you know, I've been used to, you know, eating top ramen and, you know, you know, living pretty frugal. So uh, it was nice to get that first A&T job and first day I went in and, and they needed somebody to find, probably because they didn't have much for me to do. They had, you know, you know, they said, hey, Barry can go with Frank. And, and so they moved the keto tube on the mast, apparently, uh, to get it, I don't know, better airflow or something. And they needed to take data, somebody to take data while, while Frank flew. And I always say it's because nobody else wanted to fly with them. I, I mean, it didn't seem like there was a long line to get an helicopter. Uh, you know, it wasn't certificated. And so they had me sign all this paperwork about, you know, flying experimental aircraft and stuff and got up and, you know, I mean, I was thinking I was getting a little more than I signed up for there, you know, flying around that thing with Frank. It was interesting. I can, yeah, I mean, that's very early days. And look, not much gets out about Frank as far as, you know, media and, and things like that. Uh, so, so, yeah, can what was the relationship like? And can you tell us something about uh, about Frank? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I would say, you know, with Frank, it's all about helicopters. You know, it's not like he's not into helicopters just because, you know, he thinks he can make money with helicopters. I mean, that's his, you know, that's just extremely 
motivated and committed to the, the project. And, uh, you know, it was just really fascinating to, to watch them. And, you know, you don't realize you're, you know, you're in a situation that is really, you know, unusual until, you know, you look back on it. But, uh, he was just, you know, he's just, and the other thing is just he's so, so intelligent, you know, it's just hard to, he's quiet. He doesn't really say a lot. And, uh, but everything, you know, he did was really, he really did well. You know, if you look at how that helicopter was made, it's just, I was working on one the other day and, and the frame, the upper frame, I don't you, you fly on 22, right? Yeah, yeah, fly 22. Yeah, so that frame that holds the transmission and the tail cone, uh, I think it's the AR-20-4 frame, you can, I had one just uh, overhauled, and uh, you can just lift it with your finger, your little finger, you can hold that whole frame up. And, you know, that that frame holds the transmission and tail cone to the fuselage. And it's just amazing that the, that, something that light can hold the transmission and the, and the tail cone. And the loader head, too. I show my students, I take the, the main loader head and hold it with my little finger. And uh, so you can't do that with any other production loader head that I know of. And was there a sense, so, was there a sense in those early days of that you're really onto something and that it was going to become as big as it was now? Or was it really just a, a, a small thing that just sort of was progressing? Well, it, it was just such a struggle. I mean, it was just, it was just such a, because we were having to get, go through certification and now it's just after serial number one and, you know, with Bob Golden, the casting on the, the tailor failed and, you know, that had gone into the ocean and left Bob swimming around in the ocean there. And, you know, they fixed that, they, you know, made the casting marker and, uh, you know, that's a whole interesting story about. And I heard Frank tell that story and just have to tell it real quick, but, but they had to find a helicopter to find out what was wrong. They, you know, see they had a failure problem, but they didn't know what, you know, what failed. And so Frank had hired this barge and uh, the guy, they went out and he had two divers, divers, you know, and they tried to, you know, site where the helicopter went in the water, you know, so they were, had a general idea where they were, but they were trying to find it. Apparently the two divers climbed out and from you know compression or whatever the you know, nitrogen or whatever for diving and and the guy the old guy in the barge was going to hit back and Frank said no I I you know you deal with three divers and you haven't dove yet you know and the old guy didn't want to get in the water and Frank you know Frank persuaded him to get in the water and uh, apparently on his first dive he found the, the R22. But I always thought that was fun. Frank's out there, you know, negotiating with it. I mean, he's on the boat, you know, looking for it. You know, yeah. He can send somebody else. Yeah. That that was what I thought was always good about Frank. I mean, he was the first one flying anything. He was, you know, he was there. And uh, go to HAI those early, you know, every year I went, and I went to a lot of them. He was always there on the floor working the helicopter, you know, working out there. Yeah sales and talking to customers and you know so that it was just it was just such a struggle i mean it, it wasn't like oh yeah we're gonna you know this is gonna be the new new helicopter it was, we just you know got to get this thing certified before we go broke and uh it, it was it was tough you know it wasn't uh but it was just way educational going through all that watching the faa and frank and how many hours would you have in the Joe? How many hours would you have in the R twenty two now, roughly? I don't. Uh, it's hard for me to tell. I tell everybody I got fourteen thousand hours total time, and you know, about half of that's you know helicopter, so seven, and you know maybe five, six thousand hours in R twenty two. Yeah, so that's a lot of time. So. Very quickly, for you know, again, there's still a lot of folks out there who haven't flown a 22, but can you give a, a very quick wrap up of some of the, the pros and cons of the machine? Like, what is, what's the strong points and what are the things to, to watch out for? 
Well, I, you know, obviously the, you know, I, you know, when I teach CFIs, I, you know, go through the print, then design the art print to be a trainer. He designed it for personal transportation. And, you know, he'd wanted to learn to fly it in helicopters, but he, he had to start out in airplanes because he couldn't afford helicopters. So his goal was to, you know, design an expensive helicopter. Yeah. To do that, it's got to be light. And so everything, you can tell the Robinson wasn't designed by committee because there was no, you know, at the T-bar cyclic, you know, and that came out, you know, everybody hated that, that thing when, you know, when he first came out with the product. And, uh, the engine wasn't cowled in all the way. And that was just unusual, but it was all for, you know, weight savings. And so, um, that, you know, turns into being economical. I mean, that's why people fly it. You know, we, We'd all probably be flying, you know, MB five hundred E's or something if, if it yeah, wasn't for economics of it. So I, I think a strong point is it's economical, it's dependable, uh, you know, and uh, you know, it's just a reliable machine. I mean there's it's uh, the engine's, you know, pretty bulletproof. Uh, you can't get a better power plant in my opinion. So I'd say the the strong points are it's you know it's extremely well built, you know, rugged, and uh, uh, I mean you know you, you could go up to the Robinson in my opinion and say okay improve this product without adding weight to it. You know I don't I don't know how you could do it. So anything you'd want to improve would add weight. So of course it's the the you know it's a very quick machine i don't think it's a very forgiving machine so you know that's you know maybe not your best thing for especially older guys trying to fly it you know it's it's so quick on on the yaw that uh you know that that can be a handful so i would say that would be the 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 one of the cons of the machine is it's just fast and you know so you know, I, you can't build a light, inexpensive machine that's not light and small. So you're kind of stuck. Yeah, the whole engineering design helicopters it just seems like it's one trade-off after another. Right, right. So, you know, everything that would take away the quickness would also increase the weight and cost. So, you know, it's, it's just kind of one of the... Just have to. I think the SFAR was a step in the right direction that you know require more training for everybody, and uh, you know that's improved the safety record. All right, well, let's let's move I on felt, to. Oh, sorry, finish off. I'll just cut you off then. Well, I'm just going to say it's, it's like a motorcycle. You know, it's just you know it's just you got to respect it. Jerry, let's. I guess we then talk about the um, rest of your career and, and, you know, one big achievement you had is you actually started and, and built up uh, Hillsborough uh, Aviation and, and sold that. And again, you know, even here in Australia, that, that's a quite a recognisable brand as far as a, you know, a big training organisation. So, yeah, can you just talk about, a bit about the, the journey of, of setting that up and, and, and building that, that up? Well, I worked for Frank for '79, early starting about January '79, and worked through late '80, and uh, kind of, you know, got had my, you know, nuts of Los Angeles, and want, didn't want to be there all my life, so moved on and went up and got into Oregon. I'm from, you know, Northern California, Oregon area, and. Uh, so we ended up, one of the first dealers was a guy by the name of Arne Danielson. He had the serial number two, the prototype, after Frank got done uh, with the test flying. And this helicopter went back to Arden and he lived in Hillsboro. And I'd met Arden at the factory. He'd come down and, you know, looked at the helicopter. And then when he bought another helicopter, I maintained it, did a little maintenance on it for him. So we got a relationship going and then I told him I wanted to, you know, start flying the Robinson again and so I leased his helicopter up in Hillsboro and uh you know leased it. Well he gave me some hangar space in his hangar, which is I had a stool and a, and a desk and uh 
a helicopter. And I ran an ad, 10 hours of R22 time for $800 in the paper, and I got a student that weekend. And then it just kept building from there. So I did all the maintenance, all the flying, and then, you know, hired a flight instructor, and then, you know, another flight instructor, and then a mechanic, and then we got airplanes, and just, you know, built that business up and got a little bigger than I than I was comfortable with. I sold it in uh, 92 with, uh, we had, I think we had about 40 employees and 25 aircraft. And, uh, you know, a wealthy gentleman named Ed Cooley bought it. And uh, anyway, that he kept building it. And, uh, but it was, it was great. I just, you know, it was kind of like high school. It's I'm glad you went through it, but you maybe wouldn't want to do it again. But uh, it, it was, it was quite educational. I still have friends that, that, we flew together at Hillsboro, and we still had a guy out yesterday that flies for Horizon that is one of our students and instructors. So that's really, you know, neat when you, you know, work with people that stay in the industry that you've taught. There's no, no, so, small, no small achievement to build something from, you know, one helicopter up to 25 helicopters. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's quite, a, quite an effort. Yeah, it was hard, you know, and, and what was nice is the guy that bought it, Ed Cooler, he had, he'd worked at Precision Cast Parts, who they, you know, make turbine blades, and, and he'd wanted to buy a Jet Ranger, and, uh, you know, he just had the resources to, you know, just really, you know, put the company on good, a good footing, you know, so, you know, when you start something, you know, it's pretty much underfinanced, and, and, uh, that was what we lived. We lived in underfinanced, you know, city there for for the whole duration of the company. And then when he bought it, he was able to, you know, pay all the debts off and you know pay for growth. So yeah, that was cool. It's you know, I guess it's changed hands again. The flight school Max sold the, the flight school to some company, and he's going to run the charter side of it, I guess. So we'll see what they do with it. All right. Well, then you went back for a, obviously a couple of years later. But you went back for a second bite of the cherry, and you've now got uh, Jerry Trimble Helicopters and again. You know, essentially a, a training organization. So going back into that a second time and starting the, the training, you know, school again, because it, you know a twenty five helicopter school is quite a, a busy operation with lots of things happening. How did you sort of approach it the second time around? What did you do differently? Well, the big thing I think that we've done different is just a smaller overhead. We're not a 141 school or just part 61. So we're, we're trying to fit where, you know, we don't want to duplicate what the big schools do. So what we try to do is, is fit, you know, our programs to, uh, you know, we get a lot of guys that want to build time or they want to come in and get a, instrument rating fairly quickly we we work on that and you know it's more one-on-one and uh we don't allison does you know all the marketing and and you know basically runs a company and then i do the the flying and the maintenance so it just works out a lot better to i think be just you know not try to for us anyway not try to you know grow i don't necessarily think bigger is better as far as where i want to be uh, you know how it is a big school you got to get more more structure and, and uh, you know you end up dealing with uh, you know, attorneys and meetings and contracts and you know not spending time with people so this I think smaller is better for what I like to do in the helicopter industry and what I gathered from Allison is that uh, it's everyone's job to keep you away from the uh, the front office and keep you out the back. Uh, she kind of gave me the impression that if she can keep you in the hangar and out flying, then uh, things run smoothly. Yeah, yeah, it's much better that way. So, you know, and she's her guests are really good at, at uh, you know keeping the, the marketing and the, you know all the paperwork and you know all that that work that you have to do that you know, you couldn't run a business if you didn't do it. So, I mean, if something happened to her, we'd be have to get 10 people to replace her. So, <laughs> uh, you know, she's a key, 
keep, you know, it's funny because we, we bought key man insurance on me and I'm thinking, you know, we, I can be replaced pretty easy. We need to get key, key woman insurance on her because, uh, you know, it would be hard if, you know, we didn't have her skill set there. So I, I think that's where a lot of people have problems with these small businesses is, you, you know, when you get busy, you can't do all the things you need to be doing to, to keep busy. And, you know, your business shrinks because you're too busy out there working. So it, it's just a hard balance to find. It's not easy to, to get that balance. But I think we've, we've got it figured out, you know, pretty well now. It's still the old cycle. You know, you either have too many helicopters and not enough business or, or too much business and not enough helicopters. It's hard to, to get that balanced out, but we're working on it. For sure, and Ellison, she's quite a, an accomplished pilot as well. So she she's a she was yeah. a fixed wing jet pilot. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. She got uh, you know we met at the airport. She was working on a multi engine airplane, and and I flew in an R forty four, and and uh, we met, and then she went on to fly corporate. Uh, she flew. She's typed in the Lear thirty five and the Astra jet, and. Uh, she flew corporate for quite a number of years, and then she got uh, where she wanted to just work full time here. So I was glad to see her get out of the jet and, and help me with uh, JPH here. And there was a, I think there was a comment on Ellison's bio, but I can't remember the exact details, but it was about her learning to fly helicopters, and you may have started to teach her, and then uh, that didn't work out so well. I got fired right away. Pretty much, yeah. No, no notice or nothing. I just all of a sudden she was flying with Adam, one of our flight instructors, and I'm like, "What's up?" And she says, "I'm not flying with you anymore." <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So anyway, yeah. They all, everybody says that you know you shouldn't teach family member how to fly, and, and uh, you know it's probably pretty accurate. I taught my youngest son how to fly airplanes, and and. Uh, I laugh about that. I figured he was ready for his check ride, and they were both yelling at each other. And, you know, it's not very professional, but it's probably, you know, I wouldn't recommend teaching family members, that's for sure. I was going to come and ask about that later on, but uh, are your kids going to be go through an aviation, or is that sort of because a lot of people, you know, the, the kids might do a, lot, a license or something like that, but then they'll go, you know, because that's what mum and dad did, so they'll go and do something completely different, um, just to do the whole rebellion thing, or are they going to kind of stick with it and, and follow through in the family tradition? Yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, Mick. I don't know what what uh, what their the. I got my oldest boys an engineer at Boeing. He works on the uh, 767 tanker project. And uh, I got a daughter that's a nurse and another son that's an engineer. And then Jake, the youngest, he's uh, he's uh, in the Air Force right now. He just went in the Air Force and he's in avionics. So, yeah, so he might, he he's the one that got the pilot's license. Okay. But... None, none of the rest of them have really, you know, they're interested in it, but they're like, you know, they kind of want to do something different, I think. They're tired of hearing about airplanes and helicopters, maybe. I don't know. So we'll see. I mean, it might, you know, one of them might come around here, start start working with me. Well, interesting story from my end for you, Jerry, is one of the guys I work with here in Brisbane is Michael Scott. And I was talking about the different interviews I was doing, and I mentioned your name, and he sort of the ears pricked up. And he was here in Australia and looking at uh, doing his commercial license, um, and one of the places he was looking at was coming across to the U.S. and doing it. And he would actually, you know, he, he narrowed it down to to uh, Jerry Trimble helicopters, but that he ended up doing his license in Australia. So uh, there you go. You you know, as far as a international reach there's people in mm-hmm. australia were, were looking at coming across so is that fairly common like would you get many overseas students come through yeah we get i'd say 70 to 80 percent of our business is is overseas people wanting to come and pick up a, uh, apparently there's a you know some places it's convenient to have a, a u.s commercial and fly the unregistered aircraft 
So again, we specialize in, you know, trying to get them in, you know, get them the training and get them out fast. And that's what, you know, that's what they want. A lot of schools are, are, uh, you know, just set up for long-term and enrollment and this and that. And, you know, these guys, you know, a lot of them are, you know, have lots of flight time. So they just need to, you know, get through the written and, and uh, have somebody help them with all the, dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and all the paperwork. And, and, uh, that's what we do. And that's a large part of what Allison is good at is, you know, getting everything coordinated. So, you know, you can't just have these guys come over and then just, you know, leave them hanging in the wind. You know, you gotta, you know, help them get everything done and get them back home. So, uh, that's, you know, and that, that spreads that word of mouth, you know, when you do a good job with, with somebody's training and that, you know, that spreads. We don't, we'd like to hit a hundred percent. We don't always do that, but we try. Yeah, so no, it seems to be paying off because yeah, he he definitely recognised the the name and and uh, yeah, it was, it was on his short list of places to to do his training. Yeah, yeah. Now, Jerry, what's going? It's, it's a go ahead. That's right. I was going to basically um, jump into the touchdown auto uh, competition, just make sure we do get this covered uh, quite well for time. So, like on the website and, and the stuff I've read, you know, you have a big focus on on touchdown autos um, in the in the training. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the history and a little bit about how the, the competition runs and, yeah, just some background there? Well, what was interesting when I was at, at Robinson for the – when they were doing the FAA flight testing, I was there when they did – went through the HV curve with the helicopter and then had the factory pilots demonstrate it, and then the, the FAA pilots went through and, and demonstrated it. And, and uh, was holding balloons up at five feet and ten feet. And we did it at uh, low altitude, and then we also did it up at uh, thermal, uh, not thermal, but Big Bear, actually, California, but uh, for the altitude HV and also Lake Tahoe, I guess. But anyway, so I got some really good exposure to you know the touchdown auto rotation in the, in the Robinson product, and then. So when we, I did a lot of CFI training, that was going to be my business model was just going to do CFI work because I enjoy it. I, I really enjoyed um, you know, teaching. And and so then, of course, we have to do touchdown audits for that. So I thought, well, this would be kind of fun to, you know, open this up to, you know, because, you know, you'll get people, hey, I've never done a touchdown auto and, uh, you know, I'd like to do some. And so we thought, well, it'd be kind of fun to, you know, just have a little contest, nothing, you know, I mean, we don't do anything exotic. It's just a straight in touchdown auto. It's, you know, we make it as, as safe and comfortable as possible. So, yeah, it's been, I think the response has been good. It's it's taken a while for it to, you know, catch on. I mean, everybody's like, you're going to do what? And, and so, and I'm in the helicopter with, you know, people can bring their own helicopter. In the first year we had a couple other people bring their own helicopters, but we haven't had that. <laughs> Nobody's done that since then. So I, you know, it'd be nice to get, you know, Hillsborough down here with some machines. And right now it's just, we just use our helicopter with me in it. And, uh, we grade the, the, um, you know, the people that enter, we grade them on accuracy and we grade them on uh, technique. And then we grade them on, uh, any type of ground slide that helicopter might have. Because usually we don't get them zero speeded. Then we detract points if I have to help. And usually, you know, I got to help to some degree. It's because we'll get people that just sign up and, you know, maybe aren't even hardly current. So, you know, I, you know, I got to be on the controls a little bit. So we kind of detract, you know, handicap it if I'm on the, on the controls. And so how's it? We do. So you pick the entry point, or like, how's it actually work as a logistical thing? So they'll jump in on the tarmac they, with you. You'll shoot a circuit. Yeah, we well, we, you know, we land right there. We have people kind of form a line. We land right from. They get in. We we shoot a circuit, and they do a touchdown auto. They get two touchdown autos, and they're great. They're scored on both, and of course, the best score they they get a keep. And then the judges. We have three judges, and those are usually people in the industry. And uh, so they get two shots at it, and then we hover back. And this is real, all real close proximity uh, to a taxiway there. 
land and throw the next person in and do it. And usually, I think we limit it to 10, you know, 10 entries. And it just takes too long if you, if you, if you get more people. So, and that, that's worked out pretty good. We usually, you know, end up with about eight, nine, and then at the last minute, somebody else signs up. So it seems like 10 has been a good number. So. Okay, and in 2015, mm-hmm. that's um, it's coming up in the next couple of months, I think, isn't it? Have you got a date there? Yeah, I think we're doing it in June. I should give you. Allison just stepped out. I got to grab her and get the exact date. Actually, I'm looking. Uh-huh. I'm looking at the website. It says the 28th, uh, but again, details are uh, in yeah, the Yeah, that website. sounds right. Yeah, it sounds right. So, but we have the Lions Club. They're a, you know like a, you know. Civic organization, they have a breakfast, and we, you know, we have the touchdown auto contest in conjunction with that. We give rides. We're gonna, we had a flower bombing run last year, and and uh, we're, we might do a long line demonstration. We're still trying to get that figured out. So, yeah, we're, you know, just trying to do some neat stuff with a helicopter that, you know, people don't see every day. And prize money. Huh? Is it prize money or it's just the uh, accolades for? Yeah, for there's winning? there's prize money. In fact, I got to get Allison out here and ask her what she's. I think we did five hundred dollars. Look, it's six. Oh, it's six hundred for first place, four hundred for second, and two hundred for third place. And uh, hey, Allison, is it the twenty eighth? Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Make sure you get that right. Hate to give you the wrong day. But. Oh, that's right. Well, again, we'll we'll give you the website details later, and folks can come and check that out. But uh, who are the judges you got lined up for this year? Because I think previous years I well, saw some of the names that looked um, fairly, you know, they looked fairly well-known people. You know, um, you got me stumped on that one because uh, we've gotten guys from the industry that are like EMS pilots. Uh, we're trying to get this one guy. Who are you trying to get? Allison and Sean Coyle. She's trying to get him, and we've been trying to get our examiner out there. Uh, so we had a guy from Erickson here one year. I think he's a, a vice president, not Erickson, but Evergreen. So yeah, we try to get guys out of the industry that you know we're, you know that you know understand what we're doing here, and. Uh, Sometimes we we can. I think one year we we had one of our students from Sweden. It's actually a judge. So yeah, it's uh, really enjoyable. It's sometimes hard during the summer to get the people we want because they're out fighting fire. Or, you know, they're busy. But uh, try to get some good judges. All right, well, there's a warm up for that then, Jerry. Can you give us some uh, some tips on autos? What uh, what are some tips you've picked up along the way and that you you train folks with? For teaching them, or like the real thing. Or? Well, well, let's let's cover let's cover both. So, um, we'll we'll cover the CFI side of things second, I guess. But as far as folks leading the auto rotations or just actually conducting them uh, for practice or for real, uh, what are some some good tips that? Uh, what are some mistakes that you see a lot of people make? Well, you know, of course, with the Robinson product, you know, it's it's the you know, the delay in getting the collector down because of the rapid RPM decay. So the one thing that I, I think is an ace in the hole of the Robinson product is your forward speed and and being able to apply that aft cyclic to help that airflow go through the rotor to keep your RPM up. And when you rapidly lower that collective, that nose drops, pitches down. So that really hurts your your airflow and your RPM for a lot of reasons. So I think one of the key tips is is to have people, if that engine quits or you have a low RPM situation, get the collective down and get in that half cyclic. And, uh, you know, to get that airflow, that, that it's that, you know, transition period that's the most dangerous when you have that initial failure. And uh, you just, you know, you don't have time in the Robinson to, sit there and analyze it you just got it's got to be a reflex so i guess that's the the uh the main tip and then the other tip i'd say is don't get in a situation where you gotta do an auto you know from the standpoint of maintenance you know make sure you got gas that is good clean gas that uh, you've got oil that you, you know you're 
your belts are are maintained and and your clutch alignment and all that is is done you know you've got good maintenance so you don't don't get in that situation hopefully yeah for sure so and i guess it comes back to but, picking picking flight paths too so if it does happen you've got somewhere to go yeah yeah being in a, in a situation where that you, you know it's hard though i mean out here you know we've got nothing but trees around so uh, in a lot of the places so there's not a lot of you know good places to go to if you have a problem but always be you know thinking about it and on the cfi side if we're you know if we're teaching uh, autos to people um what are some tips for for cfis well i'd say the the you know, I think what gets the CFIs into trouble is in the Robson product is that it it's it auto so different depending on the conditions. And so one day they're out there and they got a good wind and they're not that heavy and you know it's cool and the flare is working really good for them. And and so then the next day they go out and it's a little heavier and and it's hotter and there's no wind. And they use the same technique they were using the day before, and they get into trouble. So, you know, it's something where you, it's a dynamic maneuver. You can't just, you know, you don't just do it one way one time, and then that works in all situations. you got to really, really be cognizant of, you know, conditions. Because, you know, it's such a light helicopter. The, you know, everything has such a big effect on it. You know, a lot of guys will say, oh, hey, am I, you know, you know, my instrument, I just put the collective all the way down and hold it down. You know, I don't have to, you know, check it or, you know, worry about it. And, you know, we can't do that. You know, we got to always be modulating that collective to control our RPM. And so it, you know, it just, you know, you just got to fly it all the time. So that that's one thing I would tell. And the other one is, you know, Robinson covers this warm up. You know, I don't just go out and do an auto first thing. We had a guy that did that. You know, I always teach go out, do a normal approach, do a quick stop. Then if everything feels good, do a straight in auto. If that feels good, then then do a 180 auto. And we had a guy come back from across country and just decided, oh, well, let's just do a 180 auto. And they, they clipped the tail rotor. They didn't. You know, I told him I was madder at him for not following my procedure than for clipping the tail rotor. Yeah. So, you know, you got to warm up. You know, you just can't, you know, oh, let's do this, you know. It's like that old joke, here, hold my beer, I want to show you something, you know. It's just not, you know, you got to plan it all out. You can't, you can't just do it spur of the moment. All right. Look, you guys got to, look, you know, you, you do a heap of different activities here. It actually looks like a really social thing. So you run $20 helicopter flights, which must be pretty much the cheapest in the country for, for anywhere. Uh, do some movie nights. And there's a couple of things here we're going to steal off you and, and run locally. You do a you, you do a poker run. Can you just explain the, the poker run? Well, we're still working on the poker run. Uh, we tried, Allison tried that two years ago, and we ran into an insurance problem with the poker run. Okay. So maybe maybe you guys could be the leading edge on that because we're we're uh, we ran into the airport. Well, well, I know what it was. It wasn't insurance. It was gambling. We ran into uh, getting cross threaded with the uh, gambling laws in Oregon. About you know, and the city said, well, you know, you, you know, that's illegal and you can't. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it was. It was Allison was pretty frustrated because she put a lot of work into it, and then we couldn't ever get the the AOPA here in Oregon or in I don't know yeah I guess it's Oregon they have a poker run and so we're we're still working on it so that's still a project in the works but that would be it, people seem to love doing it it's just we just can't seem to get around the, the gaming laws here in Oregon for us anyway. I don't know how the AOPA does it, but yeah. And for folks who don't know, folks who don't know what we're talking about, essentially you you start at one location and get a card, and then you fly to a a, a separate airfield or another location where they give you another card, and essentially by the time yeah. you turn back up at the at the end, you've got your five cards, and it's a, the best scoring hand wins. So yeah, yeah, it, it, it'd be a lot of fun, and and uh, we're we're still trying to you know figure it out, but. I think where we got the timing was it's 
the people that do it are, are basically non-profit. And uh, I think that's where we, we might have to host something where, you know, like AOPA or something that, that can, you know, foundation that could do it. And then we could just, you know, provide, you know, equipment or whatever. So, yeah, we're still working on that one, though. <laughs> I try this. So All right. A lot, a lot of these ideas take time. It just, you know, it might not happen this year, but we're still trying to get it done. I'll run through just a couple of quick questions, Ian, because um, conscious of time too. So, uh, Jerry, what's your what's your favorite aviation memory from your career? Oh, I you know this I I have you know I saw uh, I think you know probably from as far as doing good was was uh, we were, I was flying EMS and uh, we had a situation where the this young man had gotten in a four-wheeler accident and he's at the hospital and then he had to end up having a subdural bleed and so we transported him from it was Paxil up to Spokane for, for basically brain surgery I guess and it was one of those deals where the mother wanted to go along and so you know I said sure and so she hopped in and so we're heading up there, and, and it was one of those days where, you know, it's just kind of a perfect day, and we had this really, like, 35, 40-knot tailwind, and we got up there, and I, it's always awkward for me when I'm flying, you know, EMS with a family member up front, because, you know, they have a loved one in the back, and, you know, you don't want to just sit there and not say anything, but, you know, it's pretty serious, and you don't want to sit there and, you know, oh, hey, look at the you know, look at the scenery, you know, you don't know what to, what to say. And so just, just for, to make conversation, I, I told her that that was the, the strongest tailwind I'd ever had. And, and, uh, up there and that, that flight time had been the shortest we'd ever had. And, and, uh, so anyway, I went in and they, they operated on the young man and, and then she contacted me later and, and, you know, she said that she you know, really felt it was a, you know, a doctor said that it was you know, lucky we'd gotten him up there as fast as we had because it was very serious and, and, you know, she took it as a, a blessing and an act of God that we had that tailwind. And that was, I don't know, just, you know, you do a lot of flying that, you know, you feel like you're not doing doing anything that's helping anybody. But uh, that was probably one that stuck in my mind, you know, where I felt, you know, I was kind of neat, you know. Yeah, we're actually all paid off, and you could, yeah, you could feel like you really contributed something. Yeah, yeah, it's you know a lot of times you don't, you know, you know it's like a job, and you don't know if you're, you know, you're winning or losing. But that was a good, a good memory I've had, and you know, I, you know, I like taking a lot of people up on the first helicopter flight. I mean, that's kind of, yeah, kind of rewarding. So that's good stuff. So. Yeah, it's a lot of good good memories. What about the scariest one? Right? What's been your closest call or the time when you you really thought, okay, this is this is getting uh, too close to, to comfort? Well, that's uh, you know, I probably the one that comes to mind was I was flying traffic, uh, you know, R twenty two over Portland, fairly large city. The weather was bad, and uh, so we're down fairly low, and the, the highways were all backed up the freeway because of the rain. And had a basically had an engine failure at uh, uh, low level over the you know the freeway and and then there was fortunately there was like a little clover leaf there to you know the on ramp that I was able to squeeze into so that was I you know the one that had my heart rate the the highest probably uh, after the event so. Yeah, low level engine tire. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's probably it. No, understandable. Yeah. All right, well, you're starting to expand again now because you've got a couple of different locations too. So we didn't actually cover where you are. So you guys are in Oregon, and it's, um, how do you pronounce it? Is it McMinnville? Yeah, McMinnville. And it's a great place. It's right here. We've got the Spruce Goose here at, uh, you know, the Howard Hughes' flying boat and the, at the Evergreen Museum. It's just across the street. And we're here in the Willamette Valley. We're between the Oregon coastal range. We've got the Pacific Ocean and a range of mountains that are up to about 5,000 feet. And then, well, no, I'm probably not even that high, probably around four. 
and then the valley, and then there's a, the Cascade Mountains that go up seven, 8,000 feet, and, and then the desert to the east of that. So this valley we're in, it's low, uh, and it's just very, the weather's just very mild, and we're at a non-towered airport, and uh, we have instrument approaches to it. So this is this is a great location. The problem is during the winter, uh, we can get a lot of stretches of fog and such, and so we tried to branch out. We put a helicopter down in uh, Thermal, which is by Palm Springs. And uh, we operate that during the winter down there. And then we have another helicopter in Texas by Austin. And uh, then one on the East Coast. And uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, so we it's kind of like, you know, like the one in... Uh, Wilmington is this lady Jessica that that runs that operation. It's her old business, and she leases a helicopter from us, and then we feed her students. So it's kind of a like a franchise deal. Yep. And uh, so I, because again, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to try to manage some of it. Now the Texas operation, that's a that's a company operation, uh, and we go there and spend some time. Your base, uh, your base manager in Texas. She's, uh, I don't know if it's a he or a she, but uh, they're very busy on Instagram. They've, uh, they've got a lot of photos up there. Yeah, that's Eric and uh, uh, Dina, and uh, so they, they're doing the Texas operation there, and that's neat. We got a farmhouse, and and uh, we're right by the airport, and we really like Texas. We wanna, we wanna build more in Texas, and. Uh, you know, it's just all really enjoyable. We get to talk to all different folks from all over the country. And, and uh, we like having those different bases and kind of uh, helps our marketing. And, uh, all right, well, do you want to give, uh, do you want to give your contact details a, a plug then? So where folks can come uh, find out a little bit more about what you guys are doing. All yeah, right. if you just go, you know, just type in Jerry Trimble Helicopters, uh, you know, we should come up on the, on the internet and go to our website there that's our phone number and that gets you in touch with allison and you know i'm not sure you know to tell you how illiterate i am on the computer i just i don't even look at the email allison does all that so if if somebody wants to get a hold of those other bases again go to church and helicopters and we'll have those on on the website so they can find those other bases or they can just give us a call but we have a the under locations that they can go to. No dramas. And look, it's, it's early morning for you, so thank you for, for getting up early. And I guess you've got a, a, day at, uh, a day at work ahead of you, and it's it's late evening here, so I'm about to close up. Yeah, shop. yeah, you're 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 staying up a lot later than I would be, I'll tell you that. So. Oh, that's right. I love this stuff. It's uh, yeah, I'm super keen. So that, that's no dramas at all. But uh, look, thank you, Jerry. It's been a, a lot of fun. And uh, look, there's a heap of things we didn't get to cover. But um, again, we're 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 pushing on for time there. So uh, yeah, look, thank you very much for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. You bet. You bet. All right, Mick. Thank you for your time. Hey, a very big thank you to Allison, who you hear in the background of the interview helping me set things up with Jerry. For a, a fairly small company, they have a heap of activities on, and I imagine that Allison is a, a big driver behind that. So Jerry and the students have constructed a, a 15-foot Bigfoot, or a Yeti-type creature, and it's based on a, on a wireframe, which has been covered in, in fur, and he's wearing a, a giant set of white boxes with red spots. And the students get to fit in some longline training, moving the, the Bigfoot around the local area as a local attraction, and it's something that for people to try and spot when they go up on uh, scenic flights. So it's just one of the examples of the things they get up to. And the airfields are really amazing too. So across the road from the airfield is this amazing indoor water park. And this place has an actual jumbo jet on the roof, and that's where the, the water slide starts. So you must climb up inside this building into the jet, uh, jump in the water slides, which then come down into the, the building, into the pool underneath it so if you're in that area it's something uh, again looks very very different and, and uh, would be great fun to have a, a go at normal stuff folks you'll find links mentioned in this episode and photos on the show notes at rotarywingshow.com so just keep a look out there for episode 30 and uh, be the one with jerry if you've not signed up for the email list then you can do that while you're there as well and download a list of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners 
and you'll get the occasional email when a new episode comes out. I haven't plugged it for a while, but I'd love for you to send through a short voice message that I can edit into a future show. And there's a widget there on the right-hand side of the website that allows you to record that. So just tell us a bit about where you are in the world and what sort of machines you're flying and operating and the types of flights that you're involved in. And that'd be great to, I guess, share that knowledge and you know, hear what everyone else is up to.